Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and welcome to everyone listening to this Bible class on KFUO Radio. We're very glad to have all of you with us here this morning. My name is Jerry Bodie. I am a member here at St. Paul's, and I also teach at Concordia Seminary in the Department of Historical Theology. This class this morning is called The Earliest Christians, and it is the second week in a six-week class that we're having here at the end of the summer. It'll run through the beginning of September. And this class is really about the history of the early church. It's not a Bible class per se, although we will make reference to the scriptures once in a while. This class is really about the history of the earliest Christians from the end of the book of Acts until about the year 337. 337 marks the death of Emperor Constantine. Constantine was the first Roman emperor who was a Christian. And Constantine issued an edict making Christianity a legal religion within the Roman Empire. So that is the, the, the starting point and the ending point of this class. Last week, we talked about the earliest Christians that we hear about in the book of Acts. Uh, some of the history that we have found in that book is, we, we talked about that last time. We also talked about some of the traditions, or in some cases, even some of the legends that are told about the earliest Christians. For example, we talked about what happened to James. James was one of the apostles who was executed in Jerusalem in the year 62. He ran afoul of the Jewish leaders there and was killed. We actually read about his execution in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. That's uh, one of the early martyrdoms that's recorded in the scriptures. But we also talked, for example, about what happened to some of the other disciples and some of the apostles, uh, things that are not recorded in the book of Acts. So, for example, we talked about the, uh, the martyrdom of Peter in Rome, in probably the year 64 or 65 during the reign of Nero, Emperor Nero. There was a great fire in Rome in the year 64, and Emperor Nero decided to crack down on Christians. He blamed them for the fire. One of the Christians that was martyred uh, as a result of that persecution was Peter. Now, the New Testament scriptures don't tell us about that, but there are other sources in the early church that do. And so we talked a little bit about that last time. We also talked about... The, uh, the death of the Apostle Paul, probably between 64 and 68 A.D. in Rome, again under the persecutions of Emperor Nero. It's possible that Peter and Paul died at the same time, but we know that Peter was crucified, perhaps upside down, and we know that Paul was beheaded. Uh, uh, our friend Bud uh, mentioned this last time after class, that they could have been crucified, or could have been killed at the same time. But Peter was not a Roman citizen, so he was crucified. We don't, Romans didn't crucify their own. Uh, as brutal as the Romans were, even they had some, some standards, some limitations on their uh, brutality, if, even if it was self-imposed. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen and would not be crucified. So it's possible that they both died at the same time. We talked about those kinds of things last week. We talked about some of the missionary journeys that these early disciples and apostles went on and some of the legends associated with them. So that's what we did last time. I made a point last time about talking about 
the sources for this history. Some of the knowledge we have from the book of Acts or elsewhere in the New Testament. But in many cases, we are talking about things in this class for which we do not have scriptural evidence. And so we're talking about things that were written in the first, second, third centuries. Some of these texts are reliable. And there's lots, lots of dis different uh, testimonies from this time period that all say the same thing. And we believe them to be reliable. Other sources are not so reliable. They might be very late. By that I mean 4th, 5th, 6th century. Sometimes even from the Middle Ages we have texts that claim to recount things that happened in this early church. Those texts may not be as reliable as others. Uh, I just want to mention that again. When we base our knowledge of this particular period in the church's history after the book of Acts and especially after the New Testament, uh, we're, we're basing it on sources that are not from the scriptures themselves to a large degree. And so we have to be kind of careful in how we read these texts. We don't equate, for example, these texts and put them on the same level as the scriptures themselves. We don't do that. So we take it with a grain of salt. There is, is a, a challenge, a difficulty in interpreting this period in the church's history, really from the end of the New Testament in the late first century for the next 100 or in 150 years, it's very difficult uh, to really know what happened during that time period. Historians and theologians have attempted to, to fill in the gaps as best they can. But it, it needs to be said that the evidence that remains for this early period is not really complete or sufficient enough to answer a lot of the questions that we might have about the early Christian church. Uh, and again, theologians and historians kind of do their best to, to put together a picture. But I, I just wanted you to know that early on, that, that much of what we talk about here is, is there is some speculation in what we're, in what we're doing. However, what we're going to be talking about today is really based on, on reliable evidence and sound historical fact. What we're going to talk about today is what happens to the Christian church, especially in the East, especially in Judea in the first century, after the time of the book of Acts. So we're going to be looking at events that take place in the 60s and 70s AD and in the years that follow that. And our attention really will be focused on, on Judea and Jerusalem in particular. Now we know, for example, that Paul and Peter and others went on missionary journeys to, to Asia Minor and to Greece and even to Rome. We'll hear about some of the churches in those areas a little bit later, but today our our focus is really on what's going on in, in Palestine. The years 60 and 70, in that time period, between 60 and 70 AD, these were very difficult times for the early Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. Uh, as we noted last time, the 60s and 70s is the time that Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. That's one problem, but there are also problems in Jerusalem and in Judea. For example, we talked about James in the year 62, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he was martyred at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. He was killed. Uh, tradition says that he was brought up to a pinnacle, a high point on the temple in Jerusalem, and was, was thrown off the temple fell down onto the ground where he was stoned and beaten to death. Uh, you can imagine the trauma that the church goes through when its leader is treated that way. And the Christian church in Jerusalem was still recovering from this when 
The great Jewish revolt erupted in the year 66 AD. This revolt, or sometimes called the Jewish War, that began in the year 66, would culminate in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And that, that event, the fall of Jerusalem, is going to, we're going to talk a lot about that today and what, what that meant. It had a, a dramatic effect not only on the, on the Jews, of course, that were living in Jerusalem, but it had a dramatic effect on the early Christian church. In particular, the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD would cause a, a dispersion, a scattering of Christians, not merely out of Jerusalem, and not merely out of Judea, the Roman province of Judea, but out of Palestine altogether. The Christians will leave uh, the land of Jesus, if you will. Now let's talk a little bit about the background uh, in, in all of this. The Romans had made their first incursion into the region of Palestine back in 63 BC, so the century before Jesus' time. And at that time, Roman army had taken Syria, north of Palestine, or north of Judea. They had taken Syria, and they ended up making that a Roman province. So that was Roman territory. They had a Roman governor who was a senator and uh, established an administrative government there. But in that year 63, the, uh, the Roman army decided, well, while we're here, we're going to go down and, and see what's going on south. We'll go and check out Judea, and we'll go to Jerusalem. The Roman general at that time, Pompey, who was in command of the Roman army, besieged the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is in 63 B.C. He besieged the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, he took it and killed about 12,000 Jews. The Romans then sacked the city plundered it. In the process of all of this, the Roman general Pompey decided that he was going to take a little field trip and check out the temple in Jerusalem, see what was going on, see what all the fuss was about in the temple. So the Roman general Pompey, uh, I've got a picture of this here, I don't know if you can see it very well. The Roman general Pompey goes into the temple of Jerusalem. He goes into the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. You remember, this is the place where only the high priest could go once a year. And Pompey marches right in with his generals, with his Roman soldiers. Now, in, in fairness to Pompey, he didn't take anything. He didn't loot the Holy of Holies. He could have done that, but he didn't. But the fact that he went into the temple with his soldiers meant that the temple for the Jews was now desecrated. And the Jews never forgot that. They never forgave Pompey and the Romans for messing up their temple. You know, it takes a long time to clean that up after the Romans go in and do something like this. The relationship went downhill. From, as if it couldn't get worse, it, it did get worse after that point. Well, after the year 63, the Romans set up a few puppet leaders in Palestine, one of whom eventually would be Herod the Great. You remember Herod from the book of Luke, for example. Herod is the one that uh, has all the babies in Bethlehem killed after Jesus' birth. That's the same guy. Herod is one of the puppet leaders in Judea for a time for the Romans. But after Herod died the Romans decided to make Judea a province. So this is an official part of the Roman Empire. They did that in the year 6 AD 
uh, the province of Judea was actually a satellite of Syria. Syria was the main province, and it was kind of, it governed Judea. So the, the province of Judea was governed by a prefect. Uh, Pontius Pilate was one of them. Now, over the years, between the year 6 AD and the decades that follow after that, there were a series of riots, small revolts, and other incidents between the Jews and the Romans. The ethnic tensions, Jews versus non-Jews, religious tensions ran high during this time. And you probably remember that there were various groups among the Jews during this time that were really agitating against the Romans. The Jews really hated the Romans, and they hated their, their government over them. There were groups, for example, called the Zealots. And we talked about Simon the Zealot, the apostle last time, who was believed to have been a member of this group that was really trying to, to push for a Jewish liberation over against the Roman oppressors. There were lots of groups like this agitating against the Romans, and they would get into conflict with the Romans from time to time. Even Pontius Pilate had to suppress one of these uh, revolts. But in the year 66, this is uh, really after the end of the book of Acts, in the year 66, the big revolt started. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us, and we'll talk more about Josephus in a little bit, but the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Jews had been protesting the Romans. Anybody want to guess what the particular issue was? It's not about the temple. They got that worked out. But what do you think the Jews really didn't like the Romans doing every year? Taxes, I heard it. Thank you. Taxes. The, the Jews did not like the Roman taxation, which was which was very heavy taxation. So some of the Jews decided to go out and protest Roman taxation, and they decided to demonstrate their opposition by attacking some of the Romans and beating them up. Well, the Romans retaliated in their own way, and, and some of the Romans, for example, would set up shop outside a Jewish synagogue, uh, which is like a little Jewish church, and they'd set up, and the Romans would go right out front, and they would offer sacrifices to their Roman gods right outside the synagogue, which was just really a... You know, really made the Jews mad. Uh, the Jews responded by doing other things that ticked off the Romans. It just kind of a tit for tat, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, this issue of taxation would not go away. And the, uh, the Roman uh, governor decided that he was going to take the taxes due, the Romans, by force. So he did this by entering the temple in Jerusalem and taking by force a large amount of money that was being stored in the temple. And you can imagine uh, the result. He called it revenue owed, uh, uh, past taxes due. The Jews called it war. And they went off and uh, and violence broke out, uh, and it just really escalated from there. The, uh, a lot of people left the city right away in the year 66. Uh, and there was fighting amongst them and, and the Romans early on. You remember one of these groups by the name of the Sicarii? Remember the Sicarii? They were a group that, that fled early on. They'd been fighting the Romans. They were some of the they were kind of these extremist uh, Jewish groups. They went down south near the Dead Sea to the Roman garrison of the fortress at Masada. I have a picture here on the screen of Masada. 
Uh, you can, if you visit the Holy Land, you can go see this today. Uh, it's a very high, kind of a plateau or a, a, a butte almost, we call it if we were in Wyoming. It's a butte that sits up above the Dead Sea. It's a great natural fortification. And these Sakari, these Jews held out there. The Romans besieged them. Eventually, the Jews died in a, in a mass suicide there. It was a very tragic event. That, that's what's going on as part of this as well. Uh, a, a lot of bloodshed there. Meanwhile, back up in Jerusalem, things are getting worse. In the year 70 AD, the Romans' army besieged the city of Jerusalem. And this siege was, was really, really brutal. The, uh, the, Roman, or the, sorry, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells us all about this. And it, it's really a, an awful, awful uh, siege. Of course, many of the Jews in the city tried to escape, tried to get out. And uh, the Romans made it the practice that any Jews that they escaped or that they caught, any Jews that they caught escaping the city of Jerusalem, the Romans would crucify them. And they would do this on the hillside around the city of Jerusalem, on, on a hill with the crosses of the crucified Jews all facing the city. So that when the Jews looked out from the besieged city of Jerusalem, they would see their own fellow Jews all being executed. So the point was, if you escape, this is what will happen to you. And the, the Romans did this for a long time. In fact, there was one day, Josephus tells us, one day the Romans crucified 500 Jews outside the city of Jerusalem. I mean, this is how, how bad this gets. Uh, but meanwhile, there was a lot of fighting within the city itself. Jews were fighting other Jews, especially when the zealots, those really fierce anti-Jewish folks, they decided they were going to speed the, the, the siege up a little bit by burning their own food supply. They burned the food supply for the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. You think, well, why would they do something like this? Well, they were radicals, and they wanted to force the Jews within the city to, uh, to basically leave the city walls and go out and fight the Romans. We're not going to sit in here and wait. Let's go out and do something. Well, that caused only further conflict within the city. People start to starve. Uh, it's really, really awful what happens in the city of Jerusalem. Finally, the Romans breached the outer wall of the city. And then they breached the next wall. There were a series of walls. They got all in and, and surrounded the, the center part. Finally, they broke down that third wall and went in and fought, fought their way to victory. The Romans did. And uh, finally, after seven months of this siege, the city of Jerusalem is taken by the Romans. And there's an enormous amount of bloodshed. Hardly any Jews make it out. Anybody that was in there was killed. One of the things that the Romans did uh, as in the aftermath of this is they went into the temple and they looted it. They took everything out of it. Uh, this picture that you see here is from the famous arch of Titus in Rome. Titus was one of the Roman generals. He would later be emperor. But he was a victorious general over Jerusalem. So in, in, in memory of his victory, you have this scene on the arch, which is in Rome, of the Roman soldiers hauling away 
the, the things from the Jerusalem temple. There you can see kind of vividly right there the, uh, the menorah from the temple, the candles. Those look like television cameras there. They're not. Those are standards uh, from the Roman standards. Well, this is, this is really an awful thing. It's not only is uh, Jerusalem defeated, taken, uh, the, the Roman soldiers loot the temple. Another thing that the Roman soldiers did was to dismantle the temple. I mean, they didn't simply burn it out and leave. They, they, they took it apart. They knocked the, the walls down and they and, and literally uh, didn't leave one stone on top of the other. That was how thorough the Romans were. They, they often did this when they were really mad at somebody. If you were uh, on the losing side, they would, the Romans would take you apart. Uh, they did this in the city of Carthage in North Africa. They've been fighting against Carthage for so many years. When they finally defeated the city of Carthage, they left no stone standing on top of another, and they sowed the, the ground with salt so that nothing would ever grow there again. Of course, it, it did after a while, but that was the Roman way of, of, of a, a victory. You totally dismantle your opponent, and that's what they did. Now keep that in mind, that what we've got here... In the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and in the literal dismantling of the Jerusalem temple, you have the end of the Jewish religion centered in Jerusalem. The temple's gone. Uh, and as you probably know, if you go to Jerusalem today, not that I've been there, but I've, I've, I've read about it, uh, the only thing that's left is the Wailing Wall, which is one of the former walls of the base and the foundation of the temple. Even that is crumbling. A big piece of it fell off last week and they're all worried about that there's nothing left there's the temple's gone and it's never been rebuilt we'll talk about more about that in, in just a little bit the roman a christian historian eusebius we talked about him a little bit last time he wrote a, a book in the early fourth century called church history or ecclesiastical history and that historian tells us that most of the Christians that were in Jerusalem left early during this conflict. And many of them got out as early as the year 66 when the trouble started. And Eusebius tells us that the Christians in Jerusalem escaped and went to uh, a city of Pella, P-E-L-L-A, which is on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan River. On this map, you probably can't see it very well. Jerusalem is down here. Pella is right up there, kind of across from Samaria in the eastern part of the Jordan River. This is what Pella looks like today. I know it looks a little run down, but in those days, it was a very nice city. And the Christians, according to Eusebius, fled there and remained there at least for, for a time. I'd like to say a word about Josephus. I'll go back to him for just a second. This is the Jewish historian uh, who wrote a an account of this Jewish history. He lived from between 37 and the, about the year 100. So he's uh, alive during the time of this events that he's describing. His, his works, he wrote several books, but his book on the Jewish war is one of the most important sources for the history of the conflict between the Jews and the Romans. And he's regarded to be a very reliable source. We think he probably exaggerates once in a while with the numbers, 
But other than that, he seems to be pretty reliable. He wrote his book, The Jewish War, in the year 75 AD, just a couple of years after the war ended. Josephus was born in the city of Jerusalem. He was, he was a good Jew from a good Jewish family. His father was a priest. He was trained up as a Pharisee. But when the war broke out in the year 66, Josephus was put in charge of a military group, part of the army, uh, located up in Galilee. His job was to defend part of Galilee against the Romans. And he fought, uh, and fought hard. And after fierce fighting, Josephus and some of his fellow soldiers, the ones that survived, were taken prisoner by the Romans, by the Roman army. And that particular Roman army was one that was led by a general by the name of Vespasian. Vespasian. And he had a son named Titus. Vespasian and Titus were generals. Josephus surrenders to Vespasian. And Josephus, who was a rather clever fellow, uh, once he had been made captive and he went to Vespasian and he said, you know, he says, I'm well trained up in the, in the, in the Jewish scriptures. And uh, Josephus tells Vespasian, I'm a prophet, I'm a teacher. And you, Vespasian, will be emperor. Well, Vespasian was really enamored, thought this guy was quite, quite good and uh, very insightful. And so he decided to take, Vespasian, to take Josephus, Vespasian took Josephus and, and pardoned him and made him a Roman citizen and brought him over to the Roman side. And after the war was over, he brought him back to Rome with him. And of course, Vespasian became emperor, which really kind of sealed the deal for Josephus. Josephus had told everybody that Vespasian was going to be the emperor. So Josephus enjoys the patronage of uh, not only Vespasian, but his son Titus, who had become emperor, and then the emperor after that. So he lives the rest of his life in, uh, in Rome, writing and, and working and enjoying the, the Roman patronage. So Josephus is able to write this Jewish history. He also writes a book called The Antiquities, which is the history of the Jewish people. Uh, you probably know the name Paul Meyer. Uh, who has written a lot. He's a professor at uh, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He's written a number of books about this, this period, and he's also written and uh, translated and edited uh, an edition of the works of Josephus, which are really very, very important for, for this history. Now, Josephus was, was not a Christian, but he knew about Jesus, and he wrote about him. And I want to just uh, read to you a quote what Josephus says about Jesus. This is from his book called The Antiquities. Josephus writes, About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks, he was the Messiah. Uh, some of the texts say he was perhaps the Messiah. <laughs> Josephus wasn't quite sure. When he was indicted by the principal men among us, and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. For he appeared to them on the third day, restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him. 
and the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Sentences in, in non-Christian literature about Christians being called Christians. Of course, we know they're called that in the New Testament. But it's a further example of, uh, of the, the knowledge that people had during this time about Jesus and about the early Christians. We're going to go on and talk a little bit now about what happens in the church after the fall of Jerusalem. And we're going to be focusing our attention, for the most part, on the Christians. But the, the point that I want to make about the importance of this event is that it signifies a turning point in the history of the Christian church, where the Christian church is really pushed out of, the, of Judea, pushed out of Jerusalem, pushed out of Palestine. It can't really stay there anymore because what has happened with the, with the, the result of this Jewish war. Again, this, this Jewish revolt against Rome ended with the complete repression of the Jewish people and the subjugation of the, of the province of Judea by the Romans. It's finally completely finished by the year 73, where the Romans have complete control. Jerusalem is destroyed, and it's taken over by the Romans. There are still some Jews around after the revolt. There are Jews that remain. There will be some Christians that remain as well, but not many, just a few. We do know that later, in the year 135 AD, that the Roman Emperor Hadrian issued an edict banning all Jews from Judea and from Jerusalem. So Jews could not be there anymore in their land. They had to leave. And really, from that point on, 135, Jerusalem became a Greek city, or a Roman city, if you will, but it was Greek-speaking. And they even took its name away. They renamed, the Romans renamed the city of Jerusalem, and they called it Aelia Capitolina. Aelia Capitolina. You don't need to remember that, and we don't remember it anymore. But it was no longer a Jewish city. I think the fact that they changed the name is really kind of the icing on the cake. Not only did they destroy the thing, but they changed its name. It doesn't even belong to the Jews anymore. It belongs to the Romans and to the Greeks. So the destruction of the city of Jerusalem really meant that the Christian church also was out. It severed whatever ties that it still had to the Jewish religion, to the Jewish people, certainly whatever ties it had to the Jerusalem temple. And the Christian church moves out on its own. It was more independent, it was more liberated, and it moves freely away from its connection to the Jewish religion. Remember I mentioned that Eusebius, who's this 4th century historian, reported that the Christians living in the city of Jerusalem before the revolt, that they had gone to Pella. Remember that? And uh, they, Eusebius tells us that the Christians in Jerusalem left when they knew that the trouble was brewing, the real trouble. They left because they had recalled the prophecies of Jesus about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And they knew that the end was coming. It could have been the end of the world as far as they knew at that point. But they left. And there are several examples in the Gospels where Jesus talks about this. One that you might want to check out is Mark chapter 13. Uh, this is a, a point where 
Jesus and his disciples had been in the temple courts. Jesus had been teaching in the temple courts. And after they leave, right at the beginning of Mark chapter 13, uh, the disciples say, wow, Jesus, isn't this great? What a, the temple is so, this is so cool. This is such a beautiful thing. And Jesus responds, um, yeah, just look at it. Because no stone will be left on top of one another. It's going to be destroyed. And imagine how deflating that was to the disciples. They kind of look at each other and think, oh, well, that's, of course, what happened. And, and so Eusebius suggests to us perhaps Christians got out because they knew that, that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. But when they left, and after they left, and after the disaster and the defeat of Jerusalem, they also, the Christians faced the wrath of the Jews in Palestine, who accused them of abandoning them during their hour of need. For suckers to the Romans, you're, maybe you're on their side. That's always a problem. Uh, some people are not certain about Eusebius' account. It could be just a story, but it could also explain why the fall of Jerusalem really kind of furthered the break between Christianity and Judaism, especially in Palestine during this time. Whatever the case, Christians and Jews begin to leave Palestine, especially Judea, uh, in, in, in pretty large numbers. The Jews had, had already uh, left Jerusalem and Judea before, uh, even before, before the time of Jesus. There's quite a, few number, uh, quite a few Jews that left Judea in the first century B.C. Uh, they had established themselves er elsewhere. We call it the Jewish diaspora, uh, the dispersion, the, the scattering. Uh, we know that there were Jews in the first century B.C., from all the way in western Spain to Crimea in the Black Sea. Uh, we know that in, in first century A.D., first century Rome, that there were about 11 or 12 Jewish synagogues in the city of Rome in the time of Jesus. But uh, before, even before that time, probably around the first century or the end of the, the first century B.C., that uh, the city of Rome was believed to be about 10% Jewish in its population. So there were a lot of Jews there. In Egypt, especially in the city of Alexandria, which is on the far northern part of Egypt, right along the, the Mediterranean coast, you know, the, the delta the, where the, the Nile River flows into the Mediterranean Sea, we know that there were more than one million Jews in Alexandria. And this is before the dispersion after the fall of Jerusalem. The, the Jews had become a significant uh, social and political force in the Mediterranean world even before the fall of Jerusalem. Well, after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, more Jews will leave and go out into the Mediterranean world. And that's really what we've got going on here. We have a situation where Christians and Jews are leaving Palestine and going out when they leave, to, the, to a large extent, they go into the Mediterranean area. They go into North Africa. And there were lots and would eventually be lots and lots of Christians in North Africa. They go into Asia Minor, into Syria. They go into Greece and Macedonia. They go into Italy. They go, eventually go up into places like France and Spain, what is today France and Spain. One of the things that happens to Christianity when it goes out into this Mediterranean world is they are going into a, a culture, into a world that's really foreign to them. 
and that it's a culture in a world that doesn't know them. So it's really kind of interesting sometimes to, to read what the Romans have to say about the Christians, because clearly they don't know very much about them, especially early on. So what the Christians encounter as they go out into this Mediterranean world is really what we call a Hellenistic culture. This is a culture that is surrounds, uh, when we mean Hellenistic, we mean Greek. Uh, and it's, although the Romans have political control over this world, they're administering the government in all these places. It's really the culture of the Greeks that uh, prevails. So the Christians are going out into a Greek culture, where the Greek language is the, is the lingua franca. Forgive me for saying that that way, but it's the, it's the common language. So they get outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea. Everybody speaks Greek. They even speak it in Jerusalem, probably. But they don't have that old attachment to the Jewish legal system anymore. Jewish morality is not a factor out in the Mediterranean world. And one of the interesting things I think that happens is that Christians find that the, the Greeks and the Romans, to an extent, are kind of interested in their religion. They're not always hostile to it. Later on in this class, we'll talk about some of the persecution that early Christians faced. But there were some Greeks and Romans that were kind of intrigued by Christianity. They, they thought that it might be connected to the Jewish religion in some ways, but they knew it was a little bit different. Let me give you some examples of things that it's possible that Greeks found attractive about Christianity. First of all, Christianity didn't have any idols, like physical idols made of stone or wood. The Greeks were used to that. They had idols all over the place, and the Romans especially. Every self-respecting Roman family had its own household gods. They called them the penates the little statues, little figurines of all the household gods that they would have, and they'd have a little shrine in their house, and every day they'd maybe offer up a little sacrifice or some incense, and they would pray to these little statues. Christians didn't do that. They didn't have any idols at all. So that's a big change. That's kind of curious. What do they have then? Uh, another thing that Christians had that uh, the Greeks and Romans found very interesting was that the Christians made extensive use of religious texts. They had uh, gospels and about Jesus and they had epistles and they had other books and the Christians would get together and they would read from them and they would talk about them. They would debate and discuss. And uh, Greeks and Romans thought that that's great. That's really interesting. You've got books that you read that tell about your God and about your, your Christ. But what do they say about him? The Greeks and Romans have their own books, but, but they're not, they don't sit around and talk about them, uh, not in the way that the Christians would do. They are intrigued by the dialogue that takes place among Christians. Another thing that's unusual as far as the Greeks and Romans are concerned about Christianity, and it's kind of obvious if you think about it, but Christians only have one God. Well, the Greeks and Romans have. they got more gods than they can count. They don't even know how many they have. Remember, Paul, in the book of Acts, goes to Athens, and he's preaching and teaching in Athens, and, and they, the Romans have, a, they have a, a, an altar to a god. They don't even know what to call him. They're keeping their options open in case they miss one somewhere along the line. They have a god for everything. Well, Christians have, have one god. They have 
Jesus, and the Romans and Greeks aren't quite sure what he is. Is he God? Is he man? They're working that out yet. But uh, Christians worship one God, which is very unique. And as part of that worship, they talk to him. They pray to their God, and they expect their God to listen and to engage with them, to be attentive. The Christian God is an attentive God, the Christian says, and he answers prayers. Now, if you, you probably remember from, your, for your, from uh, high school when you studied mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, remember one of the problems that the Greeks and Romans always had with their gods was that they weren't paying any attention to them. They were up on Mount Olympus, you know, doing something, having a banquet or something, or asleep. Who knows what they were doing, but you couldn't get a hold of them. And uh, this is very different. Christian, the Christian God was, was right there. He was one who, Christians claimed that their God came in human flesh and saved them. So that's interesting to the Greeks and Romans. They're, they're intrigued by this, at least to a point. One of the things that happens as the decades go on is you get into the later first century and into the second century, uh, Christianity ceases to be viewed as a variation of the old Jewish religion. And the Romans start to realize that this is actually something different. It's a, a different religion. It's kind of related, but it is different. So Christians, as they go out into the Mediterranean world, realize that they have to define themselves. Just who are we in this world? How do we understand ourselves? What are we all about? What do we believe? What do we teach? How do we worship? How do we live? And what kind of witness do we give to our God and to our Lord in this world? These are, are really important questions. Then, how are we going to organize ourselves? We've we got to get together. Right? We've got to stay together in our, in our churches, in our communities. But how do we do that? And how do we bring this gospel message of Jesus to other people? How do we teach? How do we preach? How do we defend our message? Now, these are very, very important questions for the early Christian church. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the world in which these Christians are going. Um, because it's, uh, this is one of the interesting things about this history, is that the timing, in some respects, the timing for the spread of Christianity into the Mediterranean world, the timing is absolutely perfect. This is the time of when the Roman Empire was at its greatest extent. Uh, this is a, a kind of a map of the Roman world at the time in the first, second centuries. Uh, th there are conditions that are taking place in the Roman Empire at this time that allow Christianity to move forward and to thrive. Let me give you some statistics. Uh, in the second and third centuries A.D., when the Roman Empire was its largest, greatest amount of, of territory, the Roman Empire covered more than 2.2 million square miles. Uh, by comparison, the contiguous United States, that's the 48 lower states of the United States, we have 2.9 million square miles. So 2.2 to 2.9, you can see this is a lot of territory that the Romans have. They had more than 120 million people in the Roman Empire during this time. It was about two-fifths of the world's population. And they had more than 50,000 miles of paved stone roads. 
And that makes transportation much easier, especially if you're trying to move your army, right? But transportation is easier, communication is easier, and so things are moving up. This is what we call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This is a time of political and social stability when most of the Mediterranean world was under the control of the Romans. It really starts around the year 27 BC, this Roman peace, during the reign of Emperor Augustus, and it went on for the next couple of hundred years. This Roman peace is the, is the cultural peak of the Roman Empire. Uh, during this time, the re empire reached its greatest size. The, uh, the Punic Wars, the, the Rome, the Rome was fighting against the Carthaginians in North Africa for a couple of hundred years. Finally, they defeated Carthage. That ended in 146. After that, they had a problem with pirates. Lots of pirates in the Mediterranean. Piracy was not a problem that was limited to the Caribbean. You know about pirates of the Caribbean. This is pirates of the Mediterranean, and there were a lot of them. Romans cleaned them out and, and suppressed all of them. So they control the Mediterranean. The only thing they need to worry about there is the weather. But they control the Mediterranean. They're not fighting uh, major civil wars anymore. Uh, the emperors and their armies had complete control over the uh, Mediterranean, and relative peace uh, prevailed. Sometimes this, um, the Mediterranean is sometimes called the, the Roman pond because they control every square inch of shoreline around the thing. It's during this time that there is orderly government uh, in the empire, a strong defense, skilled administration, at least for the most part, skilled administration, Tra trade, expanded and thrived. Travel was easier and safer. Communication is easier. Art and literature flourished during this time. And the, the ideal of much of the arts was that of the Greeks. So every self-respecting Roman family living in Rome spoke Greek. And every self-respecting Roman family that had any means had a tutor in their house to teach their children Greek, and the tutor would be Greek from Greece. So their culture, even though they're in Rome, their culture is a Greek one. And uh, with that Hellenistic, that Greek culture, uh, empowered by the political and social strength of the Roman Empire, uh, you have this interesting situation in the Mediterranean world where Christianity is able to thrive. The language of the Christian church, especially in the East, the language will be Greek, and it's, it's what we call Koine Greek, which is common. Koine means common, common Greek. It's the irregular, everyday language that people spoke in the world at the time. Koine Greek is the language in which the books of the New Testament would be written. Uh, and it's the language that our students at the seminary learn to this day, is Koine Greek. The language was so important in the, uh, in the Eastern Empire that it was used all the way well into the 16th century as the common language in the East, at least in the empire. So Greek language and Greek culture becomes key. It's the language of culture. Greek is the language of literature. It's the language of philosophy. It's the language of religion. And so the Jewish elements that the Christians had come out of gradually fade away. The Jews still had their synagogues in areas where they had settled, but Christians will establish their churches. 
The Christian church in the Roman Empire will really be established in the towns and the cities where the Christians go. Uh, but they are always a minority group in those places, or at least for a long time they're a minority group. As Christianity spreads through the Mediterranean world, it became more dependent on the Roman Empire. It became more dependent. Christianity becomes more dependent on the political and the social environments that welcomed it, or at least were not harmful to it. So if you think about this, Christians go out into that world and they find themselves dependent on a political and social structure and a culture that is not always friendly to it. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> is some things really haven't changed that much. Uh, the wider world in which the Christian church goes is a dangerous place, a very, very dangerous place. The church will face hostility, opposition from the outside, certainly, but it will also face division from within. There are points at which Christians can't agree on how we should be or, or what do we believe. That whole question about Jesus again, is he, is he God or is he man or, or some kind of combination of the two? We need to work on that. What do we say about that? Christians will be divided amongst themselves at a certain point, both in their teaching and in their, in their practice. Now, I want to say a word about, about the scriptures uh, at this point, because the scriptures are, are important. Just a little bit of timeline on that chronology sheet that maybe some of you have seen. I've got some of this information there. But we know, for example, that uh, the scriptures are, are important to the church even in the first century. We know, for example, that the Apostle Paul wrote his letters, his epistles, including the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus. We know that Paul wrote those sometime between the years 50 and about 65 AD, between 50 and 65, uh, right around the time of Paul's death. We know that those Pauline letters were copied by people, and they were circulated among the Christian churches. And they kept making copies, and kept making copies, and they'd send copies to the church down the road. And that's how these things are, are distributed, are spread. So we know that Paul's writings are in place between 50 and 65. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and the book of Acts, we know that those were all written by uh, the year 75 or maybe the year 80. So basically by the time of the fall of the city of Jerusalem, or the fall of Judea, we have the Synoptic Gospels written in a form that, that is basically established. The epistle to the Hebrews was written between the years 80 and 90. Oh, by the way, I want to mention back with the Synoptic Gospels again, not only do we know that they were probably in their final form between 75 and 80, but they were also being copied and distributed among the Christian churches. Uh, the Apostle John wrote his epistles between the years 85 and 95. He wrote his gospel around the year 90, and the book of Revelation about the year 95. The, the books by John were copied and were circulated among the Christian churches after that. So the point here is that basically the books that we have in the New Testament, the books that we know in the New Testament were written and being used by the early Christian church by the end of the first century. 
That's really important. We're going to talk more about the New Testament books and the canon. We'll talk more about that uh, in, in a later class. But that is really kind of established uh, at this point. We can assume, then, that most of the books of the New Testament were being read and used by early Christians. However, there were other books that were being used by the second century that are not included in the New Testament. Uh, and these other works are important because they shed light on what was going on in the early church. Uh, how do early Christians, uh, how do they confess their faith? How do they live? Uh, what did they say about God, for example? What did they say about what the, the way the Christian life should be? How do they worship? What are the practices related to their worship? And how is the church organized? Uh, how, what is the basic structure of their church? There are a number of, of books that were written in the late first century or in the second century uh, that tell us more about that early church life. And again, they're not included in the books of the New Testament for various reasons. Uh, and we'll talk later on about how, how did we get books in the New Testament, why, why some and not others. We'll talk more about that later on. That's a, a longer discussion. But what we're going to do next time, uh, when we come back next week, we're going to begin to talk a little bit about some of the writings of the early church uh, that are not included in the New Testament. Now, we do not regard these on the same level as the scriptures, and I'll make that point next time as well. But as historical documents, they're very interesting and very important for us because they give us a glimpse of what that early church was like and how Christians talked about their faith and about how they lived. I, I'll give you uh, a hint. Some of the things might surprise you a little bit. Some of the things I think you'll find to be very familiar, things that we do to this day, uh, our practice might be exactly the same as in the early church. But we'll talk about that next time. Uh, I want to ask if anybody has any, are there any comments or any questions about anything that we talked about or, Yes, please, go ahead. The question is, do we know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question. So that's, that, that's about as much as I can tell you. I, I do know that, that the, um, the Ethiopian Coptic Church, this is, these are uh, Christians, Coptic Christians from Ethiopia, they claim to have the Ark of the Covenant. And they keep it in a special building, a special church in Ethiopia. And they won't let anybody in to see it. Uh, and, so, and there's no photos of it or, or anything like that. So maybe someday they'll open it up and we'll get, get a chance to see it. I mean, last time I heard it was in some warehouse outside of Washington, D.C. You know, <laughs> but sorry, I don't have a better answer for you than that. I'd like to know. Yeah. Anything else? What was the population of, of Jerusalem around the 40s and 50s? That's, that's also a very good question. Josephus tells us, and I, I, we, we have a, take this with a grain of salt, Josephus tells us that, that a million Jews died in Jerusalem as a result of the war. And that's what I meant earlier about that. That seems awfully high. Historians today estimate that there probably were between 25 and 35,000 Jews that died as a result of that, the war in, in Judea. Uh, I, I think the best estimate is probably, um, I, would, I would say probably about, I'm just guessing, but maybe 10,000. Now, a lot of Jews came in to Jerusalem 
at the outbreak of the war, they went in to be safe behind the city walls. But uh, beyond that, I really don't know. It's, it's thousands. Yeah, it's a, it's a serious place and, uh, and, and very, very well fortified. The Romans didn't have an easy job taking those walls down. Yeah. Any, any other questions? Very good. Thank you. Uh, let's close with the blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.